today on the J. Doherty Podcast. The pragmatic and now strangely publicized existence and potential future lack of existence of Greenland. Why is the Trump administration so curious about the Danish territory? Also, President Trump has turned his back on Fox News, at least for now. Is the feeling mutual and who really started it? Finally, I'll take a check on the economy as Americans become fearful of a potential recession in light of tariffs and the recent yield curve inversion. How does the Trump administration react? We'll answer all these questions and more on episode number 103 of the Jay Doherty Podcast. Broadcasting live from downtown Chicago, here's your host, Jay Doherty. That is right, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of the Jay Doherty Podcast. It is Tuesday, August 20th, 2019, 9.34 a.m. as we come on the air and broadcast live. If you're listening to the podcast, thank you for being here. If you're listening live, thank you for being here. There is a lot to talk about, a very interesting news day, uh, a lot of continued discussions on things that have already happened. Of course, the big story this week, as it was last week, was Greenland. It was We've discussed it previously on the podcast. We'll uh, talk about some new developments. Trump says uh, officially now that it's strategically interesting. We'll also talk about his uh, belief that Fox News is state media. Uh, as if they have a transcript of the ongoings in Donald Trump's brain. That is certainly not the case. And also the economy. We've uh, been discussing the economy and what it means for uh, quite some time now. But there's a lot of new developments, a very strategic media uh, coverage and strategic media placement of individuals high-ranking in the Trump administration on many networks. We'll talk about all of that and more on episode number 104. Three of the Jay Doherty podcast. But first, before we get to any of that, we have to talk about Greenland. So as we discussed previously on this podcast, Greenland was once proposed in 1867 by President Andrew Johnson. Uh, Mr. President Andrew Johnson thought that uh, it would be valuable for just the real estate, for the territory. It would be great for their mineral and fish resources. And there was no really publicly available price tag on what Mr. Uh, uh, Johnson proposed at that time. Harry Truman in 1946 also considered the purchase of Greenland after World War II. He offered $100 million, and uh, basically, as the Washington Post so perfectly puts it, nowadays, the purchase of Greenland, at least in my opinion, and the general popular opinion, uh, is that it's a total wasteful way of adding to the national debt uh in, in it really is because if you consistent if you calculate the price of greenland consistent exclusively with a an inflation rate of 1215% and that taking that takes in the uh very the the rate of inflation that has gone on since 1946 you plug in 100 million dollars and calculate it exclusive with 1215% it ends up being $1.31574871717 billion. Or dollars, sorry. Not, 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 that would be an infinite amount of money. It's $1.315 billion. 
dollars. That would be the uh, price of Greenland if they were to buy it today. Now, of course, that would not actually be the price. I'm saying this is exclusively with inflation. They're going to add everything, and, and you know you don't even know what the terms of the agreement will be. Uh, it would be in the hundreds of billion dollars. Billions of dollars is my guess. I mean, it's almost a million square miles. Uh, 836 mi square miles. The United States is uh, 3.797 million miles. Um, so if you round both those up in relatively same margins, it's about, uh, you know, the United States is 4 uh, million miles and, the Green and Greenland is 1 million miles. And uh, it would be a lot more than $1 billion if someone wanted to buy the United States. Otherwise, Jeff Bezos would have bought it already. Uh, so... Very interesting there. That's what we know so far. But the new developments in this whole story is that Trump officially has now commented on the story. Somehow he got leaked out, of course, we, uh, from some advisor. The Wall Street Journal originally reported it. Trump said that it really is a strategically interesting move, quite vaguely, in front of Marine One on Monday. Well, Greenland, I don't know, it got released somehow. It's just something we talked about. Denmark essentially owns it. We're very good allies with Denmark. We protect Denmark like we protect large portions of the world. So the concept came up, and I said, certainly, I'd be strategically, it's interesting, and we'd be interested, but we'll talk to them a little bit. It's not number one on the burner, I can tell you that. So what does strategically interesting mean? I mean, there are a lot of strategic... Uh, there's lots of strategic thoughts that go into, of course... Uh, you know, annexing a country or combining two countries. Um, I think Russia, or the annexate or the the acquiring, the acquisition of Alaska was very intelligent. I think uh, the annexation of Hawaii was very intelligent um, for many reasons. Of course, Alaska is close to Russia. Uh, which is basically, uh, you know, at least now, it's main, main and also it's tons of land, but uh, other than that, it's really close to Russia, it's a great place for the United States to have a global presence, and it's nice just to remind everyone that we still exist in that part of the world. Uh, and, you know, some parts of Hawaii are close to Korea, so that also is kind of a, a uh, subsequent effect of the, uh, you know, I guess unintentional uh, purchase or annexation of Hawaii. And I think we can go and look back in the history of how annexations work, how strategy is implemented, and then I'll give my analysis. Uh, MarkedByTeachers.com has a great, great, uh, very simple breakdown of how the United States uh, tried to annex Hawaii and how, how successful it was. Uh, so they go on, they say, During the 19th century, the United States was trying to emerge as a global power by expanding its uh, sphere of influence politically and economically. It emphasized on expanding territories beyond the boundaries. Natural interests, ideology, and strategic interests fueled this advancement. This is the main factor that helped America become the biggest economy by investing business interests in other countries. One of the most beneficial and significant colonizations made by America was the annexation of Hawaii in 1989. Through the 19th and 20th centuries, the United States has been fearful of foreign influence in the Western Hemisphere. So, the annexation of Hawaii was very, very intelligent, very strategic move at that point. And I suppose, really, the only portion in buying real estate, the only strategical, the strategic aspect of buying uh, real estate in, in any way, even if it's a small purchase, is just having presence. Like, if you have multiple 
houses, for example, if you have tons of money and you have multiple homes uh, or multiple, you know, if you have like three farms or something like that, uh, and they're all across the country, you want to just have presence there. You want to make sure, you know, I mean, of course, there's the practical benefits as, as you know, I, you get to live there and stuff. But generally in the long term, especially in ways other people view you, you say, oh, wow, this person has presence. This person is rich. But it, it kind of makes no sense to have, if we look at this in a regional fashion, in my opinion, it makes no sense to have, uh, you know, all of your uh, car, all of your, uh, I don't know, I, I don't want to, I, I, what's the best analogy for this? Basically, I'm saying, I don't, you don't want to have all of your assets in one part of a place. You don't want to have, uh, you know, everything all stashed away in one part of the globe, one part of the country. I mean, it would make no sense to have four $10 million homes in the same city, right? It wouldn't it be much better to have four $10 million homes in like four different states, at least in my opinion. You have one where you one in New York, one where you live, one in Florida, and one in wherever you want. That makes a lot more sense, and that's just, of course, a very small version of this. But the United States has territory here, of course, the mainland of the United States, uh, we have the biggest presence uh, there. And then, of course, Alaska. We have Alaska territory. That's great. That's very diversified. We need the territory in Hawaii. We have territory in P Puerto Rico, which is uh, just, of course, south of the United States. And now we're going up to the north-northeast part of the United States, and we would sandwich Greenland between Canada in a way. So what is the strategic thought behind this? I'm saying that we already have plenty of presence in in the North American region of the country. Greenland is in North America. The mainland is in North America. Uh, and those those are, like, already established in this continent. So what is the... I mean, Trump says it's strategically interesting. In what way is it strategically interesting? I mean, you take on a lot of burdens. In fact, Trump even admits it. He says they're spending $700 million a year. Denmark is spending $700 million a year on the 56,000 people that live in Greenland. It's uh, hurting Denmark very badly because they're losing almost $700 million a year carrying it. So they carry it at a great loss. And strategically for the United States, it would be nice. But uh, we're looking at it. It's not number one on the burner. So what does that mean? Like, Okay, I, I, so you're saying, okay, well, just to be nice, just because I'm a nice guy, and I, I, uh, which of course he isn't, <laughs> uh, I'm going to go buy a country that is melting away as we speak, and uh, take $700 million off of an ally, just for fun. While I think that's appreciative, there are a lot of other pragmatic concerns that go into, uh, you know, purchasing a country, upholding a country, and all of that stuff. I don't know what Trump was talking about. Strategically, it would be nice for the United States. Okay. Uh, well, I don't really know what that means, but I'm going to go beyond that. I know I've said I don't know what that means very frequently, but the truth is I really don't. I don't think anyone does except for him. He might not even know what he's talking about. But uh, we could analyze some possibilities. I think the first possibility is that you give Greenland... I mean, okay, uh, first of all, I just want to preface this whole thing by... This purchase, this annexation of Greenland, it's never going to happen. But I think it's fun to talk about what could happen. Uh, the United States 
could purchase Greenland as a territory. Of course, it's not for sale, but they could do that, and then they could make it complete, like they could completely militarize it, uh, which would be a very interesting concept. They could give it statehood and transfer people. What? And I think the biggest question that surrounds it completely was what would happen... Um, what would happen to the 56,000 people that live there right now? Would they get American citizenship? Uh, what would happen to them? Uh, that's the real question. Would they continue uh, as Greenland citizens? Would it be sort of a separate country, but the United States still owns it? Uh, would it just be that the United States owns it at the bo- at the end of the day, but they Greenland still exists as a separate entity, but they just you know the United States owns the soil? We don't know. Uh, and who knows, there might not even be any, of course, I'd say soil metaphorically. It's a lot, a lot of ice, and it's melting away, you know, as we speak every single second as a result of climate change, which Trump, of course, does not believe exists, which is uh, heavily concerning. Uh, but it seems like a huge burden. There's a lot more liabilities that come along with it than assets, in my opinion. And I don't know why. I wish Trump just could elaborate more so I could more acutely analyze exactly what he is saying. That's my point, though. I don't know the strategic benefits of Greenland, and if someone could please enlighten me, please do, 312-625-8492, or you can tweet or whatever you want at me. Uh, I'd love to know what you think, your thoughts on on this uh, potential purchase of Greenland. Of course, it's not for sale. Greenland tweeting out uh, previously that Greenland is open for business, not for sale. Very interesting response. Trump said that on an unrelated note, he may go there after he goes to Poland and things like that. So we'll see exactly what happens. I don't think Greenland is the most strategic purchase on the planet. Unless I am convinced otherwise, I will let you know and keep you updated on that. We're 13 minutes and 24 seconds into this fine podcast here. Nothing really much to talk about. I don't want to waste your time. So we're going to move on now to the really interesting story today, in my opinion. Fox News. Trump seems to think that Fox News is state media, and he has outlined a lot of evidence that suggests that is very clearly his thinking. My thoughts on that next on the Jay Doherty Podcast. Okay, so Trump seems to think that Fox is state media. Fox News is state media, as if they have a transcript of the ongoings in Donald Trump's brain. Uh, so I don't know if that is, uh, quite honestly, I don't know that if that's the case. Uh, he basically, in front of, in that same interview that we talked about previously about Greenland with the press, he was, quote, not happy with Fox News. I'll tell you, Fox is a lot different than it used to be, I can tell you that. Uh, Juan Williams, then they have the wonderful woman that gave Hillary Clinton the questions. That was a terrible thing. And all of a sudden, she's working for Fox. What's she doing working for Fox? Fox has changed, and my worst polls have always been from Fox. There's something going on at Fox, I'll tell you right now, and I'm not happy with it. Okay, Mr. President, I don't know what that means. He's not happy with the polls that he gets. I don't know why he could be uh, not happy with Fox. Uh, But before we get to that, I just want to bring in some breaking news. Uh, We have some breaking news coming into our extensive network of newsrooms all across the uh, the world. Uh, the Prime Minister of Italy has just resigned, saying, uh, let's see here, uh, he, okay, so we're still learning uh, new details, uh, but for those listening live, we do have some breaking news, updates to follow. Italy's Prime Minister said that he is going to resign very soon, so we'll continue to have you update on that. 
Uh, but of course, I think those statements that you just heard from Trump, uh, are very, very similar to what someone would say if it was state, if if he was talking about state media news and he just didn't have a grasp on it. If it was, you know, if the scripts were written by by employees of Donald Trump and things like that. Trump does not own Fox News, and just because there's many hosts that are all in their primetime lineup that are very conservative, does not mean that he, they have to, uh, you know. Uh, you know, uh, tend to his every single need. You know, it makes really no sense. Fox is not state media news. After Greenland, the squad attacks, the recession, and now this attack on his diminishing voter support group about America's most statistically popular news station, it is clear that, in my opinion, Trump is becoming a far less electable candidate, especially to those who are not loyal to him. And I say that because, and I say the most uh, statistically popular news station... At any time, CNN or MSNBC, just uh, very, very broadly here I'm speaking, uh, anytime they have about 8 million viewers, a little bit less, Fox has 25. Fox is incredibly high in ratings. Uh, and if, is that because of their uh, many times conservative bias? Is it because they're not super far left, but they are kind of far right, and sometimes they're not even either? You know, you never know. I think Fox, their main... Client, the the main viewership goes on during the midday when they have the not as crazy uh, opinionated hosts, just like CNN. But and then their real lineup is of course primetime: Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and others. On the other end of that, you have Chris Cuomo, of course, and others. Uh, and and you know, it's tough competition, I suppose, with Fox. And I think people. Generally, and I'm speaking in a very general sense and, and statistically, people are becoming kind of uh, upset with the uh, very uh, clear liberal bias in the media and the majority of the media. Uh, and so they turn to Fox because, you know, Fox, if you really think about it, pretty much every single network except for Fox, at least mainstream network that we're defining by mainstream terms, is outwardly biased towards uh, liberal uh, people and and Democrats. They're very, very against conservatives in pretty much every single way. Uh, so everyone, you know, congregates in one specific network, the minority. And, you know, if Fox News was spread out again, uh, you know, across six networks, the ratings wouldn't be so high. But because people, so, you know, there could be 8 million people, 8 million people, CNN and MSNBC, and then other people are watching CBS at the same time watching NBC or ABC, uh, and you add all those up, it really is kind of halfway. It's 24 and 24, 25 and 25. I know this probably makes no sense if you haven't looked at the recent ratings, but um, basically what I'm saying is Fox is a hub for conservative mainstream talk. CNN, MSNBC, ABC, they're all one giant hub, I suppose, for liberal talk, if you really want to generalize it in that category. So it's like five smaller stations with liberal views up against one huge station with very conservative views. And that's what Trump is, you know, becoming mad at. He thinks that Fox is just not becoming uh, is not is not as conservative or as supportive of him and his narratives as he wants them to be. And his base, his support group, two separate things by the way, watch Fox News constantly. And when he when they see these attacks on Fox News and their polls and things like that, 
they're going to get mad. They're going to say, wait, hold on, I like Fox News. I think these people are right, and I, you know, you can say fake news all you want, but I, I, I see what's going on, and I think there's people that realize that. But there's also people who not. And notice how I said before, I said voter support group, not base. His base, or at least the majority of it, I think are sticking with him. They, there are a lot of people that will just stick with him, whatever he does. But the other roughly 40 to 60% that voted for him uh, last time have felt that Trump has or is about to cross the line. And I think he has. Many times, of course. But I think for a lot of people, they're realizing that after this crazy Greenland purchase idea, the attacks on the members of the squad, the ban that he recommended to a foreign leader, uh, the upcoming potential recession, that's the big thing, they're going to realize, well, hold on, there might be, you know, someone like Joe Biden, who's more moderate, not crazy progressive Democrat like Bernie Sanders, they might be a better vote for me. And of course, I'm speaking on behalf of some imaginary conservative voter. So that brings me back to my main point. This whole thing about Trump and people hating Trump or people loving Trump, it's all about rhetoric, not policy. That is the ridiculous thing. If you look at Trump's Twitter timeline, I mean, uh, I was just looking at it the other day. He was tweeting out a, or no, it was yesterday. Uh, it was it was ridiculous. He was he was tweeting out um, uh, a, an approval rating poll. Uh, let me just see here. So he, of course, let's just hold on. Let me just let me just uh, let's just see his original tweets. What happened? Uh, what is going on? So I, I'm talking about Trump's Twitter line, timeline. How this whole thing is about rhetoric, not policy. And just to give you an example, here are three recent tweets from Donald Trump. Fifty nine minutes ago, this is the first original tweet that I could find as of right now. She, he retweeted uh, Rana McDaniel, who is, let's just see who she is, the GOP chairman and uh, wife and mother of two, according to her Twitter bio. She tweeted, Anthony Scaramucci has zero credibility. He's a disgruntled employee attacking Donald Trump for his own personal gain. The media shouldn't give him airtime. Donald Trump says, just another disgruntled former employee who got fired for gross incompetence. Uh, so I do agree in many cases. I don't want to make this about Anthony Scaramucci, um, but the I do agree with that that they are trying to you know that Scaramucci is appearing on all these networks because uh, they're not gonna you know they he he needs the attention he feeds from the attention and he wants I suppose the business for his own personal gain as the GOP chairwoman chairwoman said, but that still does not make him. You know that doesn't that doesn't prevent him from uh, being able to speak out, and I think you know the president they they always had some sort of a decent relationship at the minimum about Air Anthony Scaramucci and things like that. I I think you know as soon as of course Anthony Scaramucci starts attacking Trump about his policy uh, and or not about his policy, sorry about his rhetoric, he's gonna fight back. And I think the really interesting, the really kind of the only interesting thing to take away from what Anthony Scaramucci has said in this whole entire thing is that there's a lot of people within the White House that think Trump's a total idiot, it's crazy. I mean, just off the rails, insane. But they're afraid to speak up, and he says that he's the first to speak up. He also says that Trump's policies, the ones that he doesn't write, that other people write and he just signs off on, very conservative, they help the country, and I could understand how one could think that. I'm very respectful of that opinion. 
So that's Trump's Twitter timeline. He also tweeted out a uh, poll, a Zogby Analytics poll, that said 51% of Americans approved. Now, it turns out that this poll, like many polls, is technically correct, but written very obtrusely and even in an objective manner. The actual poll, which you can find at ZogbyAnalytics.com, says 27% strongly approve of Trump, 24% somewhat approve of Trump, 10% somewhat disapprove, and a relatively astonishing 37% disapprove of Trump, leaving 2% unsure of where they stand in their support. We'll have this poll linked at the website, but Trump had to literally scout out a poll that said 51% of people uh, voted for them. Now, I'm, I might just be, uh, you know, uh, obtrusely, I'm sorry, uh, it might be obtusely uninformed about uh, polling data and polling uh, companies, but I've never heard of Zogby Analytics, and I've, I've took a look at their website. doesn't look uh, very high-tech, you know, in terms of relative to major networks that regularly do these polls, like the Washington Post, like ABC, like Fox. While they may be biased in their own ways, facts are facts, and a recent poll from Fox News showed him polling in the 40s and not the 50s. Now, he tweeted out a graphic of him, 51% approval rating. All right, just made it over the halfway line. Uh, so I think that's really interesting. I, you know, 51% approve, but, uh, you know, if you add up all the stuff, you know, relative to that, 47% uh, disapprove and 2% are unsure of where they stand. Now, of course, that's relative, uh, and I think it's really, really kind of ridiculous uh, hold on, let me, let me actually look at this poll here, um, it's very deceiving the way he has this, 30, okay, so, I, I always think the people, at least in these polls, and you never know how many people they surveyed, I mean, they could have gone to, like, you know, West Virginia and, you know, interviewed 10 people, and this was their poll, uh, <laughs> but the, the thing here is, uh, that 27% strongly approve of Trump, 37% strongly disapprove of Trump, now, that's what he won't won't tell you. Now, of course, if you add both of these up and add strongly approve and somewhat approve, and then also the other way around, you get 51 to 49, which is fair. And this poll concludes that Trump has a bigger uh, outreach and a bigger support group uh, than other polls have suggested, and what I even think the reality is. But... It is very deceiving when they add up uh, these numbers. 27 and 24 make 51. 37 and 10 make 47. But if you really think of who, you know, the people are going to vote for him, I think only 27% of this whole entire, out of the 100%, I think only 27%, if not less, are going to vote for Trump. Because if he keeps going on the same road that he's been recently going down in the past two, three weeks... People are going to convert, and I think the people who are unsure of where they stand are also, the majority of them, the majority of that 2% are going to lean in, if they're more conservative in the middle, and they'll lean towards Biden and others, because some people just cannot take the rhetoric anymore, and that that might just be a simple annoyance rather than a legitimate, you know, policy, uh, you know, vote, and you have to also remember that uh, maybe you're one of these people, maybe you're not, I don't know, but people, a lot of times, will just vote, be, you know, on the how they happen to feel that day. Some people don't put 
tons of political analysis into their vote. They just go into the box, and it's something that you do as an American, because you're a proud American, and you vote, because you realize that so many people have fought to earn you this right to vote, and you should vote. I agree. I can't vote, obviously. I'm too young, but I uh, think that it is certainly a duty of someone to vote. Uh, and it's certainly an American uh, exercise, but some people, like uh, many people who don't really read the New York Times and uh, frequently update themselves in the ongoings of politics, they just see little clips here and there on Twitter and such, they'll go in and vote and say, oh, I saw a great clip of Biden today, let me just press that button. And I saw a good clip of Donald Trump or a bad clip of Donald Trump, and I don't want to vote for him, so I'm going to vote for someone else. Now, of course, that is a, a somewhat insulting in many ways, but it is somewhat the truth in, in, for certain people. Not all, but certain people will just skim the books. They don't have time because they have so many other things going on in their life that they can't update and keep themselves impor- informed on the latest details within politics. So... Back to my thing about how this is all rhetoric and not policy. Uh, If you look at Trump's Twitter timeline, obviously it's all rhetoric. He bashes people constantly. He boosts his own ego by polls from small places and things like that. But even if you look at all of the liberal news networks, all CNN, MSNBC, all that stuff, that is all about his rhetoric. They're playing to his game. They're playing to what he says and not what he does. The more conservative networks like Fox News, they'll talk briefly about that, but then they'll shift in and have some person who is an expert on a specific issue come in, a gun violence expert, and point to all these statistics, and really at the end of the day, they sound more smart because they're talking about what Trump is actually doing rather than what he is saying. And if you cross-reference Trump's Twitter timeline to the White House press releases, which I signed up for, you should too, at whitehouse.gov, You see, literally, I'm going to go into my inbox right here, and you will see that what you, like, I mean, it is just astonishingly different from what you see on his Twitter timeline, from what, you know, the White House uh, sends out. Uh, Now, it seems like I might be going here on on a little bit of a tangent, but this is truly, if you look at what they send out uh, from the White House, let me see here, um, and you cross-reference that with Trump's Twitter timeline, the White House is all about policy. It's all about concrete things the president is doing. Now, if you look, and why is this significant, you may ask. Well, if you look at uh, presidents like Obama, who was really the first one to use social media in a very impactful way to get across, his, get his message across, um, basically all of his Twitter, you know, all of his tweets were just kind of retweeting new policies and updating the American people on what's going on. Now, that's not to say that Obama uh, is better than Trump in that way, which I, of course, think he is in pretty much every other way, but I am saying that President Trump tweets out just what he's thinking at that say, at that moment when, uh, you know, the White House actually puts out dignified and composed policies. Trump is not retweeting or mentioning any of that. He will sometimes vaguely give a shout-out to, I'm helping the farmers today, and blah, 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 X, Y, Z, but rarely does he, meaning himself, tweeting from his account, ever say and promote the policy of the White House. So, that's just my opinion on that. I I think you really have to analyze the policy if you want to be able to give Trump the benefit of the doubt. Read only the text, read sources like, you know, the Associated Press and very very neutral sources, and just 
focus on the policy. Even though it's hard to do and even though it gets really annoying, and you know, you could go with someone else who doesn't constantly bring up this unnecessary rhetoric, it's kind of what you have to do in this administration. And in my opinion, in a democracy, you shouldn't have to conform yourself or change yourself in order to support your leader. You should have a duly elected leader in which you voted for. And of course, if the majority disagrees with your opinion, then you have to just live with that because that's how democracy works. But if the majority d- disagrees with your opinion and somehow the same leader is in the office, it's just not how it works. I don't know. We'll see what happens in this re-election. I think he's becoming far less electable. Three weeks ago, I would have said, oh yeah, definitely. He, he's going to win. He's definitely going to win 2020. And I think he still has a huge chance of winning 2020, to be honest. But far less electable uh, right now than he is than he was just a couple weeks ago. That's my opinion on that. we got to move on now, though, to new developments. As we previously uh, discussed, uh, President Trump is blaming the Federal Reserve for uh, concerns about the slowing U.S. economy after yield curve inversion and then uh, the subsequent stocks to drop, also those tariffs on Chinese goods. We'll talk about all of that next right here on the Jay Dorney Podcast. Uh, so President Trump has blamed the Federal Reserve for concerns of a slowing U.S. economy after the yield curve inverted and uh, stocks generally started to uh, decline. The president called uh, Federal Chairman, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell clueless and said that he, uh, he believes that the yield curve is crazy, all in caps on Twitter. He also says that we're winning big time in his administration's economy with the trade war with China. But uh, some new developments, though, as of this, the gap between me not podcasting and me podcasting right now, over this past weekend, there was a very strategic plan laid out by the economic division of the Trump administration, which two senior economic officials appeared on at least four separate media networks in two days. Two senior economic, economic officials in the Trump administration appeared on four separate media networks in two days. Saturday and Sunday, those two officials are Larry Kudlow and Peter Navarro. Mr. Kudlow is the director of the United States National Economic Council. He appeared with Chuck Todd, and uh, he defended the economy, as, of course, the concerns of a recession manifest are, uh, are manifesting into traders' buying and selling decisions. He also tried to downplay the recession and overwhelm Mr. Todd and the viewers with optimism. We're doing pretty darn well, my judgment. Let's not be afraid of optimism. Let's not be afraid of optimism. It's Fair a enough. funny uh, I, I, sign of our times. I, I, and I think there's a very optimistic economy going on. So, okay. Um, well, I think you can be very optimistic. I think it's a very important quality to be optimistic. But Larry Kudlow with Chuck Todd, uh, you know, thinking about all this stuff, uh, potential recession. I think you could be, uh, you know, you can be very, very optimistic, but also be very pragmatic in the way you think. Optimistic in the way you hope, and pragmatic in the way you think. Mr. Kudlow and this whole administration uh, do not seem to be pragmatic in the way they think, and many times they're not even optimistic in the way they hope. On December 7th, 2012, or 2007, excuse me, uh, at 10.24 p.m., Larry Kudlow wrote a column in the National Review in which he says something quite optimistic. He wrote, quote, There's no recession coming. The 
pessimists were, were wrong. It's not going to happen at a bare minimum. We are looking at Goldilocks 2.0, and that's a minimum. Goldilocks is alive and well. The bush boom is alive and well. It's finishing up its sixth consecutive year with more to come. Yes, it's the greatest story never told. That is, of course, uh, a precursor <laughs> to the recession that happened when uh, Obama took office as a result of the uh, Bush administration leaving and many other things that they've done in the past. He predicted, very falsely, as many did, that this recession would never happen. And he's doing the same thing again. So one can only hope, well, or one can only think, well, if he predicted wrong the first time, well, then he's certainly predicting wrong the next time. Doing the same exact thing. You know, being very optimistic about it. So, Chuck Todd actually pressed him on this, quoted a part of the article, uh, similar to what I read, and I, I read kind of more of a highlight of it, but after Chuck Todd read that to Mr. Cullo, live on air, by the way, he defended himself saying that it was wrong, but he thinks it's a totally different circumstance right now. I, I, I admire your optimism, but the data is pointing in another direction. Well, I plead guilty to that late 2007 forecast. I plead guilty. But look, this is not then. This is not then. Uh, our banks are well capitalized. Our financial system's in very good shape. And I must say, as the president is transforming and rebuilding this economy, he deserves enormous credit, a new policy of lower taxes and regulation and energy opening and trade reform. Okay. So he referenced that quote directly, and uh, of course Mr. Cullough goes on to proceed with his talking points as he was instructed to and kind of maybe even came up with. Uh, he's a very conservative voice in this whole in this whole deal, uh, but um, if you really want to voice your opinion on what could happen with a recession based off or not based off of what Mr. Cudlow just said, please give me a call, 312-65-8492. We'll play it on the next episode or share it on Twitter. Uh, back to Cudlow. He was not the only Trump administration economic official to appear publicly. Peter Navarro, who is the assistant to the president and director of trade and manufacturing policy, also appeared on ABC News This Week program where he was a bit more aggressive than Larry Kudlow. And it was, first of all, it kind of escalated. I think ABC was a little bit more tame, and then we went on CNN afterwards. He was a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more, uh, more, more feisty. What I can tell you with certainty is that we're going to have a strong economy through 2020 and beyond with a bull market. So that's Mr. Navarro, uh, and that's when he first appeared on ABC. And then he got really mad and went on CNN with Jake Tapper on, uh, on CNN's State of the Union show. A study from researcher at Harvard, the University of Chicago, the IMF, and the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston in May found that U.S. importers are shouldering about 95% of the price change from the tariffs, and China is shouldering only 5%. See, that dog won't hunt. Let's do some math here, right? All right, you let's put do some math. 10% tariffs on $200 billion. Are you saying that their research hang is on, wrong? Hang on, Just do some math with me. $200 billion... We put on a 10% tariff, and China devalues their currency by 12%. Mm -hmm. Okay? Is it, are consumers bearing anything on that? No. Okay, so we're actually talking about, Mr. Navarro, the future. Uh, not the present, not the past. We are talking about the future. Is there a recession? Of course, he defaults to the Chinese argument, which is actually a decent argument, probably the best one I've heard from the Trump administration regarding economic policy. Uh, but... We are talking about what could happen if a recession is coming and whether or not it's going to be the United States' fault or China's fault or both. We just want the facts. So Navarro appeared on ABC and CNN. Meanwhile, 
Kudlow was on uh, Chuck Todd's show on uh, NBC, and then also he appeared on Fox News, which was much more accepting of Mr. Kudlow's optimism in the messages that he delivered. Consumers are working, the wages are rising, they're spending, and they're saving. A lot of Wall Street firms looked at the numbers last week, and they raised their forecast. So, so no, you... there is no recession in sight. Okay. No recession in sight, according to Mr. Kudlow, who falsely predicted the original 2007 recession. Now, of course, I... I uh... I'm sorry, the lack of recession. Uh, and there was a recession. He predicted that there was not one. Now, of course, I give, I, I kind of have to uh, step back. A lot of people did not predict that uh, recession. But I, I, I very, very, uh, I judge everyone independent of others. I think that's the best way to do it. Because a lot of times that gives you the very straightforward result that is, uh, even if it's positive or negative, if you judge everyone independent of others in any circumstance whatsoever, even outside of politics and far beyond outside of politics, you always get the best results. So I'm judging Mr. Kudlow independent of anything else and anyone else, and I'm saying that he predicted incorrectly before, and he just did it again. I think there is a recession that could come very soon, and I could be wrong on that. But I think Eugene Robinson from the Washington Post wrote a really good column that kind of explains this whole this whole thing and from a very liberal point of view. Now, as I've said hundreds of times probably on this podcast that I'm independent, I'm not liberal, but it, Eugene Robinson wrote a very, very good factually and policy-based perspective column in the Washington Post which reads in the second paragraph, quote, Trump is flailing. He berates his hand-picked chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, for not cutting his interest rates fast enough to goose the economy. He practically begs Chinese President Xi Jinping for a meeting to work out a trade deal, any trade deal apparently, and is met with silence. He threatens more tariffs than backs down, at least for now, and according to published reports, he sees himself as the victim of a conspiracy to exaggerate the economic anxiety in order to hurt his chances of winning a second term. Mr. Robinson, you have won the best summary ever. I don't know why I just had the bell sound effect, but you have won it. You have won it, sir. That was one of the best summaries of the, of the 2019 economic policy and what Trump has done that I have ever heard in my life and uh, that has ever been written in my life. That is literally a, a summary of exactly what has happened in the Trump administration. I just want to point that, point that out to you uh, because... Even, of course, this is, if you insert and get rid of the verbs and adjectives in here, it's very, very subjective and very biased, but he const I mean, it is factual that he constantly picks on uh, Jerome Powell. He obviously begs uh, Xi Jinping for a trade deal, wants to sit down, negotiate, doesn't get anything back because Xi Jinping knows he's an idiot, and then also he threatens more tariffs and then backs down, but then also claims that he's a victim of a conspiracy trying to hunt him down and destroy him by ruining his chances of a second term, ruining his chances of election. I don't know about that, Mr. President. So what do you think about the recession? You think it's going to come? I don't know. We've talked about the yield curve. We talked about stocks. We talked about all that stuff. If you want to hear, I mean, I've kind of just gotten sick of talking about that, to be honest. If you want to hear about that stuff, I don't want to continue repeating myself because there's really not much other news 
but if you do want to hear my perspective on that, you can go to thedortyfiles.com or listen to previous episodes uh, I talked about in the last episode and then episode 99, I think, whenever that whenever that yield curve inverted, you can go ahead and listen to that episode. But I do want to talk about some other financial news that is making the headlines. Trump met with Tim Apple. Oh, sorry, I meant Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple. About how the administrator's ter- administration's tariff plans could hurt Apple's manufacturing in China and boost Samsung, which is quite possibly their largest worldwide competitor. Uh, now, of course, that Tim Apple reference was when Trump uh, called Tim Cook Tim Apple on accident. Uh, but, okay, anyway, uh, basically the point here is that Trump met with Tim Cook, they had dinner, and, uh, they, basically Trump, or sorry, Tim Cook made the argument that the tariffs that the Trump administration is scheduled to impose will completely, uh, berate or suppress Apple's ability to make as much money as they should be, mostly because Samsung is a very avid competitor of them, and they're also based off, off of, based in, uh, South Korea. So, uh, Trump and uh, Cook tried to uh, kind of talk about the tariffs, the manufacturing uh, aspect of, of Apple, and uh, how these new tariffs that Trump is scheduled to impose uh, could boost Apple's largest competitor worldwide, Samsung. So, why did he talk about this? Well, it's really only because of Apple's manufacturing. A large part of their consumers are located in China, while Samsung does most of their manufacturing in Vietnam. The president addressed the subject of his talks with Tim Cook at that same little thing that he held outside of Marine One, one of the most eventful press conferences in all of the Trump administration. It only lasted about five minutes, but here he is talking about Tim Cook. Uh, and the talks that uh, they had with each other. Tim was talking to me about tariffs. And, you know, one of the things, and he made a good case, is that Samsung is their number one competitor, and Samsung is not paying tariffs because they're based in South Korea. And it's tough for Apple to pay tariffs if they're competing with a very good company. Oh, was that the end of the clip? Well, I kind of like cut out there. Uh, sorry, I don't know if that was the software or if that was my clip, but whatever. Uh, that, that, you I mean, Trump actually, that was pretty eloquent, you know, uh, compared to other things that he said. It's, it is a summary. I think Tim Cook probably did make a good case, and it is a very good point. It hurts America. Apple is a huge tech giant, and Samsung is a South Korean company, which automatically gives the incentive for the United States to help Apple, its competitor in this instance, who trade on the recently failing NASDAQ market. It is an easy move for Trump to make on a tech giant that has massive influence in the markets. So I hope he makes it. I hope he helps Apple because they literally can move the market so much just with their stock and what they do and all that stuff. And it's going to be very interesting, in my opinion, to see what happens with Apple, see what happens with these tariffs, and see what happens in the broad overview of America. How will history look back on this potential recession? We don't know. We will We will one day, though. And I'll be here to cover it. It's the Jade Ordy Podcast, episode number... 103 people 103 episode number 103 it's 10 19 a.m on tuesday august 20th 2019 we appreciate you for listening to this episode of the podcast if you like it please consider subscribing and also leave us a positive review if you're listening on itunes and just email me feedback if you hate or love anything in this podcast let me know my email is jay at jay-doherty.com and of course you can listen to show highlights and 
podcast archives at thedortyfiles.com or at jay-dohertycom We recently had a redesign. I completely scratched what we had. It was not as good as what I wanted it to be, and so we completely scratched it, and we have a totally new website look. Uh, it looks much better, much easier to use, and I hope and encourage you to go over there and check it out. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back for another episode later this week. 312-625-8492 if you want to have any feedback, any questions, comments, or concerns. I appreciate your time. Be back for episode number 104 later in the week. That's it. Farewell. The J. Doherty Podcast is hosted in the JD Media Network Studios in Chicago, Illinois. The J. Doherty Podcast is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by J. Doherty. TJDP is voiced by Newsmic VoiceOver, hosted by Blueberry, and edited with Audition. The J. Doherty Podcast is a JD Media Network production. Copyright J. Doherty 2019. Make sure to listen to other JD Media Network productions, like the JDRC Politics Podcast, for weekly discussions on international politics. Or listen to the Weekly File Podcast for all the news, just the facts. Learn more and hear more of this content at j-dorty.com or view archive clips and show highlights at thedortyfiles.com or listen to other JD Media Network productions in nearly any podcast directory. Thank you for listening to this episode of the J. Doherty Podcast.